Chapter Two of Free Air. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Hollis Hanover. Free Air by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Two Claire Escapes from Respectability. Claire Boltwood lived on the Heights, Brooklyn. Persons from New York and other parts of the Middle West have been known to believe that Brooklyn is somehow humorous. In newspaper jokes and vaudeville, it is so presented that people who are willing to take their philosophy from those sources believe that the leading citizens of Brooklyn are all deacons, undertakers, and obstetricians. The fact is that New Washington Square, at its reddest and whitest and fandalitedest, Gramercy Park at its most ivied, are not so aristocratic as the section of Brooklyn called the Heights. Here preached Henry Ward Beecher. Here, in mansions like mausoleums, on the ridge above docks where the good ships came sailing in from Surabaya and Singapore, ruled the lords of a thousand sails. And still it is a place of wealth too solid to emulate the nimble self-advertising of Fifth Avenue. Here dwell the fifth-generation possessors of blocks of foundries and shipyards. Here, in a big brick house of much dignity, much ugliness, and much conservatory, lived Claire Boltwood with her widower father. Henry B. Boltwood was vice-president of a firm dealing in railway supplies. He was neither wealthy nor at all poor. Every summer, despite Claire's delicate hints, they took the same cottage on the Jersey coast, and Mr. Boltwood came down for Sunday. Claire had gone to a good school out of Philadelphia on the main line. She was used to gracious leisure, attractive uselessness, nuts and her chocolates, and a certain wonder as to why she was alive. She wanted to travel, but her father could not get away. He consistently spent his days in overworking and his evenings in wishing he hadn't overworked. He was attractive, fresh, pink-cheeked, white-mustached, and nerve-twitching with years of detail. Claire's ambition had once been babies and a solid husband, but as various young males of the species appeared before her, sang their mating songs, and preened their newly dry-cleaned plumage, she found that the trouble with solid young men was that they were solid. Though she liked to dance, the dancing men bored her and she did not understand the district's quota of intellectuals very well. She was good at listening to symphony concerts, but she never had much luck in discussing the cleverness of the woodwinds in taking up the main motif. It is history that she refused a master of arts with an old violin, a good taste in ties, and an income of eight thousand. The only man who disturbed her was Geoffrey Saxton, known throughout the interwoven sets of Brooklyn Heights as Jeff. Jeff Saxton was thirty-nine to Claire's twenty-three. He was clean and busy. He had no signs of vice or of humor. Especially for Jeff must have been invented the symbolic morning coat, the unwrinkleable gray trousers, and the moral rimless spectacles. He was a graduate of a nice college, and he had a nice tenor, and a nice family, and nice hands, and he was nicely successful in New York copper dealing. 
when he was asked questions by people who were impertinent, clever, or poor, Jeff looked them over coldly before he answered, and often they felt so uncomfortable that he didn't have to answer. The boys of Claire's own age, not long out of Yale and Princeton, doing well in business and jumping for their evening clothes daily at 6.30, light-o'-loves and admirers of athletic heroes, these lads Claire found pleasant, but hard to tell apart. She didn't have to tell Jeff Saxton apart. He did his own telling. Jeff called, not too often. He sang, not too sentimentally. He took her father and herself to the theater, not too lavishly. He told Claire, in a voice not too serious, that she was his helmed Athena, his rose of all the world. He informed her of his substantial position, not too obviously, and he was so everlastingly, firmly, quietly, politely, immovably, always there. She watched the hulk of marriage drifting down on her frail speedboat of aspiration, and steered in desperate circles. Then her father got the nervous prostration he had richly earned. The doctor ordered rest. Claire took him in charge. He didn't want to travel. Certainly he didn't want the shore of the Adirondacks. As there was a ranch of his company in Minneapolis, she lured him that far away. Being rootedly of Brooklyn Heights, Claire didn't know much about the West. She thought that Milwaukee was the capital of Minnesota. She was not so uninformed as some of her friends, however. She had heard that in Dakota, wheat was to be viewed in vast tracts, maybe a hundred acres. Mr. Boltwood could not be coaxed to play with the people to whom his Minneapolis representative introduced him. He was overworking again, and perfectly happy. He was hoping to find something wrong with the branch house. Claire tried to tempt him out to the lakes. She failed. His nerve fuse burnt out the second time with much fireworks. Claire had often managed her circle of girls, but it had never occurred to her to manage her executive father, save by indirect and pretty teasing. Now in conspiracy with the doctor, she bullied her father. He saw gray death waiting as alternative, and he was meek. He agreed to everything. He consented to drive with her across two thousand miles of plains and mountains to Seattle to drop in for a call on their cousins, the Eugene Gilsons. Back east they had a chauffeur and two cars, the limousine and the Gomez de Perdusen Roadster, Claire's beloved. It would, she believed, be more of a change from everything that might whisper to Mr. Boltwood of the control of men not to take a chauffeur. Her father never drove, but she could, she insisted. His easy agreeing was pathetic. He watched her with spaniel eyes. They had the Gomez Roadster shipped to them from New York. On a July morning they started out of Minneapolis in a mist, and as it has been hinted, they stopped sixty miles northward in a rain, also in much gumbo. Apparently their nearest approach to the Pacific Ocean would be this oceanically moist edge of a cornfield between Schoenstrom and Gopher Prairie, Minnesota. Claire roused from her damp doze and sighed. Well, I must get busy and get the car out of this. 
Don't you think you'd better get somebody to help us? But get who? Whom? No, it's just who when you're out in the mud. No, one of the good things about an adventure like this is that I must do things for myself. I've always had people do things for me. Maids and nice teachers and you, old darling. I suppose it's made me soft. Soft. I would like a soft Davenport in a novel and a pound of almond griddle and get all sick and not feel so beastly virile as I do right now. But... She turned up the collar of her gray tweed coat, painfully climbed out, the muscles of her back racking, and examined the state of the rear wheels. They were buried to the axle. In front of them the mud bulked in solid, shiny blackness. She took out her jack and chains. It was too late. There was no room to get the jack under the axle. She remembered from the narratives of motoring friends that brush in mud gave a firmer surface for the wheels to climb upon. She also remembered how jolly and agreeably heroic the accounts of their mishaps had sounded a week after they were over. She waded down the road toward an old woodlot. At first she tried to keep dry, but she gave it up, and there was pleasure in being defiantly dirty. She tramped through puddles, she wallowed in mud, in the woodlot was long grass which soaked her stockings till her ankles felt itchy. Claire had never expected to be so very intimate with a brush pile. She became so, as though she were a pioneer woman who had been toiling here for years, she came to know the brush stick by stick, the long, valuable branch that she could never quite get out from under the others, the thorny bough that pricked her hands every time she tried to reach the curious bundle of switches. Seven trips she made, carrying armfuls of twigs and solemnly dragging large boughs behind her. She patted them down in front of all four wheels. Her crisp hands looked like the paws of a three-year-old boy making a mud fort. Her nails hurt from the mud wedged beneath them. Her mud-caked shoes were heavy to lift. It was with exquisite self-approval that she sat on the running board, scraped a carload of lignite off her soles, climbed back into the car, and punched the starter. The car stirred, crept forward one inch, and settled back one inch. The second time it heaved encouragingly, but did not make quite so much headway. Then Claire did sob. She rubbed her cheek against the comfortable, rough, leather-smelling shoulder of her father's coat, while he patted her and smiled. Good girl, I better get out and get help. She sat straight, shook her head. No, I'll do it, and I'm not going to insist on being heroic any longer. I'll get a farmer to pull us out. As she let herself down into the ooze, she reflected that all farmers have hearts of gold, anatomical phenomena never found among the snobs and hirelings of New York. The nearest heart of gold was presumably beating warmly in the house a quarter of a mile ahead. She came up to a muddy lane to a muddy farmyard, with a muddy cur yapping at her wet legs, and geese hissing in a pool of purest mud serene. The house was small and rather old. It may have been painted once. The barn was large and new. It had been painted very much, and in a blinding red with white trimmings. There was no brass plate on the house, 
but on the barn, in huge white letters, was the legend, Adolf Zolzak, 1913. She climbed by log steps to a narrow frame back porch littered with parts of a broken cream separator. She told herself that she was simple and friendly in going to the back door instead of the front, and it was with gaiety that she knocked on the ill-jointed screen door which flapped dismally in response. Ya! Yeah, from within. She rapped again. Hinein! She opened the door on a kitchen, the highlight of which was a table heaped with dishes of dumplings and salt pork. A shirt-sleeved man, all covered with mustache and calm, sat by the table, and he kept right on sitting as he inquired, Well, my car, my automobile, has been stuck in the mud. A bad driver, I'm afraid. I wonder if you would be so good as to... I usually get three dollars, but I don't know as I want to do it for less than four. Today I ain't feeling very good, grumbled the golden-hearted. Claire was aware that a woman whom she had not noticed, so much smaller than the dumplings, so much less vigorous than the salt pork was she, was speaking. Aber, Papa, that's a shame. You charge the poor young lady dot when she drive by herself. What she think of the Sherman people? The farmer merely grunted to Claire. Yeah, four dollars. That's what I usually charge sometimes. Usually? Do you mean to say that you leave that hole there in the road right along, that people keep on trying to avoid it and get stuck as I was? Oh, if I were an official! Well, I don't know. I don't guess I run my place to suit you, smart Alex. Papa, how you talk on the young lady? Make shame. From the city. If you don't like it, you stay by Minneapolis. I haul you out for three dollars and a half. Everybody pay dot. Last month I make forty-five dollars. They was all glad to pay. They say I helped them fine. I don't see what you're kicking about. Oh, these vimmins. It's blackmail. I wouldn't pay it if it weren't for my father sitting waiting out there. But go ahead. Hurry. She sat tapping her toe while Zolzak completed the stertorious task of hogging the dumplings then stretched, yawned, scratched, and covered his merely dirty garments with overalls that were apparently woven of processed mud. When he had gone to the barn for his team, his wife came to Claire. On her drained face were the easy tears of the slave women. Oh, miss, I don't know what I should do. My boys go on the public school, and they speak American just so good as you. Oh, I want man lets me love America. But Papa, he says it is un... unsin. You got money, he says. Nobody should care if you are American or old country people. I should wish I could ride once in an automobile. But I am so shamed, so shamed that I must sit and see my man make this. Forty years I've been married to him, and pretty soon I die. Claire patted her hand. There was nothing to say to tragedy that had outlived hope. Adolf Zolzak clumped out to the high road behind his vast rolling flank horses, so much cleaner and better fed than his wisp of a wife. Claire followed him, and in her heart she committed murder and was glad of it. While Mr. Boltwood looked out with mild wonder at Claire's new friend, 
Zolzak hitched his team to the axle. It did not seem possible that two horses could pull out the car where seventy horsepower had fainted. But, easily, yawning and thinking about dinner, the horses drew the wheels up on the mud bank, out of the hole, and the harness broke with a flying mess of straps and ropes, and the car plumped with perfect exactness back into its bed. End of chapter 2